The first lesson is from Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Has anyone ever seen the Italian film Life is Beautiful? Yeah? Okay, spoiler alert. You guys know my policy. If it's more than like eight years old, I'm just going to tell you how it ends. So you should still watch it if you haven't seen it. It's a great movie. Uh, in, in this film, Roberto Benigni plays a man named Guido, who's a Jewish-Italian bookshop owner. He falls in love, and he and his wife, Dora, have this sort of idyllic life together. I mean, who wouldn't want to own a bookshop? Uh, and they have a son, Joshua. But then things begin to change, and Joshua grows up in the shadow of World War II. And eventually, Guido and Joshua are separated from Dora, and sent to a concentration camp. But it's there in the camp that Guido's vivid imagination works to shield Joshua from the horror of their present situation. So he convinces his son that they're playing a complicated game. And the first person to get a thousand points or something is the winner. And if you win, you get to ride on a tank through the streets of the city. And everyone's in on the game, okay, Joshua? 
So, you know, you can't complain. You gotta stay chipper, have a good attitude. Do what's asked of you, do what the guards say. And the guards are in the game too, so they're gonna act really cranky and mean. But that's just because they wanna win. That's their part to play in the game. So you have to do your chores, you can't complain. And what you realize as the viewer is that Joshua is existing in a world with competing stories. There's the story of what seems like objective reality, which is one of darkness, direness, and death. And then there's a story that he's required to take on faith, which is one of love and life in the midst of sacrifice. If you've seen the movie, you know that eventually Joshua's trust in his father leads to his salvation. They find out that the Americans are on their way. The war is almost over. And so Guido instinctively has Joshua hide until the Americans get there. He tells them, under no circumstances are you to leave this hiding spot until the Americans come and rescue you. And then he finds out that Dora is there in the camp. And as he's going to look for her, he's caught by the guards, and they're going to lead him to the place of execution. But Guido knows that as they go to the place of execution, he's going to walk right past the place where Joshua is hiding, and Joshua will be able to see him. And so if he goes to his death downcast and afraid, Joshua will inevitably run out and will also be killed. And so instead, he walks like a clown past the box where his son is hiding all the way to death. And Joshua stays hidden until the Americans come, and guess what? He won the game. He gets to ride in a tank. Our Old, text, our Old Testament text this evening reveals to us that Abram, too, exists in a world with competing stories. The one that looks like objective reality is one of bleakness, barrenness, and dried-up, dying desert. Abram and Sarah have left everything they ever knew. They left home and family and struck out for nowhere, all because why? Abram was hearing voices in his head telling him to go do this thing, and that they would be given a child. It's this alternate story that he's hearing. That despite the fact that Sarah's womb was as dry as the desert they'd be tramping through, they would have a son, an heir, offspring. And our New Testament lesson hits on something that's very, very important. If we had been following uh, the story of Abram through Genesis until this point, we would know that Abram doesn't say a word in response to the voice of God. He just gets up, packs up the family, and heads out. He is a man of deep faith. He just obeys. It's almost like he can't even talk. He has nothing to say. God says move, he moves. God says do this, he does that. That's it. But as time drags on, Having children goes from an unlikely proposition to an impossible one. Home is a million miles away, and death is right next door. And the questions, I think, that arise for us out of this text are the same questions that faced Abram in this story, and even that he voices. What can you give me? Right? But the deeper question that he's asking himself is, can the story that God is telling him be trusted? And the other question is sort of the flip side of that coin, is that can the God who's telling this story be trusted? Is the story trustworthy, and is the one who's telling it trustworthy? We're going to work this story like a scratch it, and as we keep scraping off film, we're going to see a picture of faith emerge that I imagine for some of us 
maybe a little bit surprising. So first I want to just give you sort of the overall shape of this Old Testament lesson before we dive into some of the details. The narrator here, I don't know if you picked up on it, has actually pushed together two stories into one, right? So there's these two sort of book-ended sessions that are happening between Abram and God that serve to sort of fill each other out and mirror each other a little bit, but they're not the same exact thing. So in the first one, it's happening at night. God comes to Abram, he makes a promise with an I am statement. He says, I am the Lord, makes the promise. Abram responds with complaint and questioning, and God reassures him with symbols. In this case, he tells him to go out and look at the stars in the sky and says, this is what your offspring will be like. And we're told that Abram responds by trusting. He believes God. The second episode takes place in the evening. Did you catch that? In the second time, it's now sunset, and God makes a promise to Abram with an I am statement. Abram responds with complaint and questioning, and God reassures him with symbol, this time with symbolic act, by cutting a covenant with him to assure him that he will be given this land of promise and he will have an heir to inherit it. And Abram responds by trusting God. Now we're going to spend just a few minutes trying to understand what's happening with this covenant before we turn to look at how Abram's uh, response of faith is instructive for us, as the writer of Hebrews said. Because the covenant-making scene in the story is incredibly mysterious. I mean, isn't it strange? The things that the narrator chooses to include. Part of the reason it's strange, I think, is because it's so foreign to how we go about making legal partnerships. If you want to have a legal partnership with somebody, you find a good lawyer, you write up the contract, you sign your things, and then you figure out how to get out of it later, right? I mean, isn't that sort of how our culture works? But this is very different, isn't it? But it's also foreign to us, I think, because the, the character of God of Yahweh, the Lord, is presented as personal. He's coming and talking with Abram, but also completely enigmatic. He appears as fire and smoke and dreadful darkness, which is exactly how he will appear at Sinai generations from now. When, when God's promise to Abram is coming true, and he's pulling his descendants out of Egypt and brings them to his mountain to then make a covenant with the descendants of Abram through Moses. And in that scene, hundreds of years later, God shows up in almost the exact same way, fire and smoke. And when he leads the people out of Egypt, he does so as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. These revelations are ultimately mysterious, but they point to something very key about the nature of God that I think we have to appreciate before we can move on to Abram, which is that God is self-revelatory. He illuminates the things that orbit around his essence with fire. But he is also very confounding. The deeper you are pulled into him, the smokier and darker things get. The more his fire illuminates, the more his smoke and darkness obscure and confound, which tells us that God is no one's parlor trick. He is entirely other. How incredible that he would come and make a covenant with a human being. And not only that, but stick around for all the complaints and questions. It's incredible. So in this culture, when two parties wanted to make a covenant, a, a solemn, binding, legal agreement, here's how it would go. 
Together they would slaughter the appropriate animals, showing that they are financially invested in this decision. Right? Animals are a sign of wealth. It's a symbol of life. It's more than that. It is life. And yet they would bring these animals together and slaughter them together, saying that they were going to make this at cost to themselves. And then they would set the pieces apart from each other. And oftentimes the blood would start to pool in between the pieces of the carcasses. And then both parties would walk through the pieces of flesh. And I realize that this may seem quite gruesome to our modern sensibilities, but the symbolism of what was happening here was not lost on these people. They, they were not somehow barbarians who just loved to roll around in blood. No, what they were saying was, this is a really, 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 really big deal. It's, it's a metaphor, it's, a, it's an acted metaphor for, I now have the blood of this covenant on my feet, and if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain, may what's happened to these animals be done to me. Right? Failing to uphold your end of the covenant results in destruction. Now in this case, the particulars of the covenant surround the inheritance of land. God is covenanting to Abram that this land that has been promised to him will actually be given. It will be handed down. And he's dealing with the issue that Abram is upset about, the fact that land is meaningless if you don't have an heir to give it to. God tells him that he will give him a child from his own loins, not an adopted heir. And the offspring of Abram will come to inherit the land. But if you'll notice in this covenant-making scene, in the second one, Abram is in the deepest of slumbers. And my glasses just fell apart. <laughs> I told you I needed new glasses. Where are you? Where'd she go? All right. We're going we're gonna to get through this. Abram is in the deepest of slumbers. The word that's used here is actually used of when God put Adam to sleep to create Eve. He's out. He's not doing anything, right? He's not helping at all. All he's doing is watching in a vision. He has one of two primary players in this covenant. He's just watching it happen. As he drifts into the darkness of God's presence, all we see is the fire and smoke of God passing through between the pieces. God is metaphorically getting the blood of the covenant on his feet while Abram stays clear. Now, to try to say more about this covenant would be to enter into speculation. As I've said, what is pictured for us here is very mysterious. It's a hazy description of ancient things that have been long lost to the memory of mankind. But what we can say is this. In making himself the primary party, the only party to be held accountable, God has made Abram's faith the only guarantee needed. Right? God is the one who passes through and makes the covenant. All Abram has to do is believe. And what is unfolding before us in this short story is, is a microcosm of the continuing drama of Scripture, and indeed all of human history, which is that God is not content to allow his wayward creation to just continue on their pathway to destruction. Instead, he comes barreling after us with full force, aligning his fate with ours. This covenant that he makes with Abram is a foreshadowing of the day when God will eventually take on flesh in Jesus, who takes on the death of the world, essentially saying, I will hold up both ends of the covenant, mine and yours. The blood is on my feet. 
And the only thing required of humanity in this covenant is faith. It's trust. It's trust that God will make provision for our failure. The Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time in more than one epistle to the early church fleshing out what it could possibly mean that Abram was justified by faith. I mean, this is the core of Christian doctrine. That Abram believed something God told him and it literally changed his standing before God. It brought peace between him and God, reconciliation. It gave him righteousness. It made him right in God's sight. But I think that what often happens for those of us that have spent time in the church is we just say, okay, so now I understand the doctrine of justification, and that's the same as having faith, right? I ticked off all the right answers. I just have to make sure that I don't get any coffee stains on my exam. I can hand it in at the end. Good to go. Totally in the clear. And we can start to get kind of neurotic about it, can't we? You know that you're getting neurotic about your perfect little exam of faith if the people around you start to question things or complain and you do this and jam your thumbs in your ears because you just can't. Nope, nope, nope. Got to keep it clean. As I said at the beginning, Abram and Sarah have been promised a child, but they're still living in a world marked by barrenness. And up till now, when God tells Abram something, like I said, he just got up and went. No response. Just obedience and faith. But in this story, you can almost hear the tension in his voice as God comes to him again and says, Abram, don't be afraid. I'm going to make your reward so great. What could you possibly give me? He says. I'm still childless, and when I die, I'm going to have to sign over my entire estate to one of my servants. And then there's a pause. And God, being so full of compassion and love, just remains silent. He just keeps listening. And Abram, like many of us, when we have pent up frustration and anger, just keeps talking, but he just repeats what he just said. He has no new information. He just wants you to know he's really upset. You haven't given me any children, so I'm going to have to give my estate to a servant when I die. But God tells Abram the alternate story again, the one that doesn't seem to square with reality, and we're told that Abram believes the Lord, and it's credited to him as righteousness. It changes his standing with God. And then in the second section of the story, God comes to him again and makes a promise, and Abram again responds with questions. Well, how is this really going to work out? And God responds by cutting the covenant with him, and Abram responds in faith. I mean, what is happening here? It's actually been suggested uh, by, by various rabbis throughout the years that Abram's complaints are so over-the-top, just like from the gut, screaming at God, that someone went back later to the, to the original, you know, the, the later documents in Genesis, what we call Genesis, and wrote in the part about Abram believing and trusting God and it being credited to him as righteousness so that we wouldn't, you know, have a founding father who's just a complete screw-up and has no faith and, like, completely lost his faith, right? I think for us, we tend to read this story and not really hear the complaint, but it's loud and clear. It's loud and clear. It seems like whenever Abram opens his mouth, he reveals the fact that he doesn't actually believe. Or does he? 
If faith is just a quiet pietism, something that can hide away from the parched desert terrain of life, then perhaps Abram really isn't believing. Or it could be that our conceptions of faith simply aren't robust enough. If we take this story at face value, and by the way, no real scholars actually believe that someone went back and added that in. They're just making a point. If we take this story at face value, I think what we'll see is the truth in what one theologian said is that complaint and faith are not antithetical. Complaint is based on taking God seriously. Faith is not a dance through a flowery meadow. I mean, who needs faith for that? Faith is shakily putting one foot in front of the other, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Faith is noisy. Faith involves fighting, wrestling, and oftentimes anger and impatience. I mean, here we are at an Anglican church, right? We, we seem to have this leftover notion from our colonial days that having a stiff upper lip and keeping calm and carrying on is somehow faith, and that emotional outburst is somehow not faith. But I think what Abram shows us in this story is that it is in the emotive outburst that faith actually finds its footing. Faith shouts back because it's counting on God to keep his promises. Silence in the face of delayed promises is not virtue. It's a sign of despair. It's a sign that you no longer believe that God will really do what he says he will do. And so you just quit talking to him altogether. Notice also that faith is incredibly earthy. All of the promises that Abram is being charged to take hold of have to do with physical life. It's a physical child, a physical plot of land. Apparently, if you want to enter into relationship with the true God, you've got to be willing to get dirty. Because this is a God who makes covenants, and it's a God who deals in dust. All along, his mission has been to have a place in which he will dwell with his people. And in order to get what he wants, he wraps himself in the dust of flesh and enters into death. And now we, like Abram and Sarah, are called to faith. We are called to trust. We are called to respond not to anything we can see in the world, but to a word which promises to overcome the barrenness of the world. Now, some of you may be literally dealing with the pain and emptiness of barrenness. Or the emptiness of singleness. Some of you may be dealing with the loss of a child or a sibling or a parent who perhaps has turned their back to you or to Jesus and the church. Some of you are wrestling through desert patches in life that you've never had to encounter before. You've been a person of faith for years and suddenly it's like your glasses broke in the middle of a sermon and you can't really see anything. Some of you have been sort of on the outskirts of faith, just kind of dipping your toe in. You're not really sure that you can actually believe that God would come as a man and die and then be brought to newness of life. And what I have to say to all of you is the same. Don't be afraid to make noise. 
Don't be afraid to get dirty. Don't be afraid when the concrete of your faith starts to crumble because faith is a deep trust in a person that even when trust itself cracks open, God will remain faithful. That his promise of new life in the future will eventually collide with the death and barrenness of the present. And it hurts, I know. Because we find ourselves standing as people living between times, caught between a promise and its fulfillment. And it can feel at times as if we're being pulled apart. And I would suggest to you that this too is a part of faith. That that weird little ending in Genesis 15, I didn't just put that in there to make Abby have to pronounce a bunch of weird names. It's an excursus from God on what awaits Abram's descendants, which is not really the best of pictures. It's life after suffering, and that's mirrored throughout Scripture. Faith, being put back into right relationship with God, always brings suffering. Because we find ourselves grasping onto God's promises with the one hand, and the desert of this world with the other, and we find ourselves crucified taking the shape of our Savior, being brought deeper into his death so that we can attain life in him. And I would say to you, if you have been baptized into Christ's church, and you are asking yourself the question that Abram asked of God at the very beginning, what could you give me? how God keeps his covenants at this table. Because what this table is telling you is that you, as a baptized person, have been given everything you need in Christ. It's yours, because he is yours. Come and feast and find your faith being renewed. <coughs>